I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr Binks. You know how it's becoming spring and everybody thinks, gosh, we must put a flea treatment on our dog. Well, you're one of the lucky ones because luckily I don't think like that, do I, Mr Binks? And you've hardly had any insecticides or pesticides through your life. Well, that's why we're going to discuss this further with Andrew Prentice, one of the fellows of Imperial College, who've just announced staggeringly depressing figures about how pesticides used on pets only are contaminating our British rivers. Andrew, welcome back to A Dog's Life. Well, thank you for having me. Well, no, it's brilliant, actually. Thank you for coming on, because I was at the press conference that you were one of the main scientists on the board talking about the latest science, which concurs with or takes further the study by Sussex University about 18 months ago. Was it, Andrew, that looked at 20 rivers in Britain and highlighted that the toxicity of these rivers was, you know, beyond levels that could support ecosystems in yeah. our in our little rivers in England where lovely ecosystems are being poisoned and destroyed by two main insecticides that are only found in pet flea treatments. Yeah, I mean, I think this comes as part of a, a wider concern about chemical pollution in our environment. Um, and that's both in nature and the outside world, but also in the home as well. And there, is, there are scientists across the board now who are beginning to get quite concerned that we might be doing much more harm to nature and indeed to ourselves because we just use so many chemicals. And you're quite right that that, that a, a trigger article here was the, was the one that came out of Sussex University with, with um, Rose Perkins and Dave Goulson. And that certainly really got me thinking about this. Um, I'd already been quite concerned that as vets in practice, we were continuously being encouraged to use parasite treatments. Uh, the, the story being this is responsible medicine. This was really important because of the health risks to animals and the health risks to people. And so this this ongoing narrative that it was a major health problem, it could only be addressed by using um, parasite treatments. But I was looking at my patients coming in the door and thinking, you know, most of these animals are pretty healthy. Actually, they don't appear to, they may actually, they may have health problems, but they didn't seem to be associated with parasites. So I was kind of already asking the question. And when um rose produced her paper it was like oh my goodness actually some of these products that we're using are just going straight out into nature and and these product these chemicals have been designed very specifically to kill insects to kill what we call invertebrates so these are little tiny little bugs they could be little shrimp-like creatures in the rivers they can be flies they can be larvae all this kind of stuff. they're very specifically designed to kill those um and so when they get out into the environment maybe they're having problems there maybe they're causing problems there too so i and many of us together i think were sort of concerned about this um, and the research that we've just released most recently, uh, where you were there for the um, for the, the press launch of this, shows us that this 
contamination of the rivers in the UK is far more widespread than we had feared. And these... It's very worrying, isn't it, Andrew? But explain how then you've put a, a flea treatment on your dog. How yeah. does it end up in the river? Well, it, we're, we're still working on the sort of conclusive proof of this, if you like. But what? Well, let's, let's go back the, the, the other way around. What we're finding is that these products are present in the rivers in the highest concentrations where there are lots of people. So it has what we call an urban signature. So it, it's it's where people are, which is where animals are, and that's where we're finding the, the highest levels. And then if you look within a given river, where are the levels highest? And it's just downstream from the water treatment works, the wastewater treatment works, sewage works to you and I. Right. Um, so it, the, it, what appears to be happening is that the water is coming down the domestic drains going straight through the sewage treatment works because there's no mechanism there to remove chemicals like this and out into the river. So then we think, okay, so how's it getting into our wastewater that's going down the drain? And we're realizing from work that is, is ongoing at the moment, but yet to be fully published, is that what happens is you put those little drops from the pipette on the back of your pet's neck and you get a few drops on your finger. It's really hard to avoid doing that. So what do you do? You wash your hands, perfectly normal. And then your cat or your dog, you want, you know, comes and sits on your lap, you stroke your dog. You can't see it, but some of that gets on your hand, even if it's dried on the fur of the dog. So there's some on your hand. Next time you wash your hands, a bit more goes down the drain. And then maybe your pet's sitting on your lap. So at some point, you're going to wash your trousers or your skirt or whatever it is. There's more pesticide on your clothes, it goes down the drain. You wash your pet's bedding, you wash the carpets. You, it's just a continuous flow because these products stay on your pet for quite a long time. The treatments are often given monthly or in some of the, some of the given preparations given by mouth, it's much longer than that, but a monthly preparation, your pet will have that product in their fur for a month or more. And each time there's contact, um, that ends up with you washing your hands straight down the drain. That seems to be a much more important route than what we had thought before, which was the story about pets jumping, dogs jumping in the river and dogs dumping, jumping in a pond and going swimming. And if you look at the data sheets on the product, so when you, when you buy or prescribe one of these products, you open up the cardboard pack and inside it, is a little sheet of paper with lots of fine writing on it that is the data sheet that tells you about the product, what it is, and what precautions to take. And the wording on there is mostly about don't let your dog swim for two hours, two days, three days, four days, depends on the product. But what we're realizing is that's significant, but it's nowhere near as significant as simple hand washing and clothes washing and bedding washing, which is how it goes down the drain. Just straight through out into the rivers. Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, it's not only dogs having these treatments. <laughs> you know, cats, cats don't really like swimming, Andrew. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, um, and and that's that's the root. It's it it appears to be hand washing is is really the problem and washing. Um, so, and I think a lot of this is largely largely unrecognised, but the real issue here is. 
were using these products and they're given, they're used in good faith. You know, um, a dog or cat owner comes for advice, what should I be doing? You know, do I need to protect against fleas and ticks and, and all the other myriad parasites? And it's it's done with the best of intentions. But I think what's becoming increasingly apparent is we need to be much more careful, much more circumspect with how we use not just these chemicals, but chemical products in general. Well, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, I mean, there's loads of chemicals in the home that causes big stress to our dogs. So from air fresheners and scented candles oh. and, you oh. know, the myriad of cleaning products that you might use. And there yeah. is more awareness of all this now. There are plant-based cleaners out there. In fact, actually, is a new firm that's brought out probiotic cleaner, Andrew. So I'm actually right. cleaning my flat, would you believe it, with probiotics. So wow. that's... Okay. Yeah, segue to a different conversation with you. It, yes. it, it, yeah, but isn't that interesting? Yeah, so I'm quite excited about this and feel quite smug, to be fair. But however, okay, so it's not only the waterways, though, as I see it, that's suffering, which is a big deal with the environment and the consequences, though, that mm. is already out there. Because you were one of four prestigious scientists speaking, you know, and your other colleagues were perhaps a bit more on the on the environment mental aspect so you were the vet there but there were other scientists with yeah. different perspectives on this and yeah. and the, the shock of one of your your colleagues saying that basically if this carries on our rivers aren't going to be cleaned out so that basically they're going to become stagnant and dead yeah i mean the writing's on the wall actually for a lot of, of this there's a um Insect numbers in the UK are absolutely in free fall at the moment. You know, it's a curious, it's a curious thing because you know England being the green and pleasant land, you mm. drive around the countryside, it looks gorgeous. There's green fields, the flowers are coming out, and the animals are there on the land, and it it looks fine. It's not fine at all, and there is. Um, uh, one of the measures of this is something called the, the bio, biodiversity intactness index. So this is a measure of how how intact is the is the natural biodiversity of a country. And this has been done for over two hundred countries around the world to look at see well how are we doing? How's the environment doing? How are the na native species bearing up? And the UK, you'd think we're doing pretty well. Actually, we're in the worst 10%, the worst 10% for the loss of species, the populations of natural species that are endangered. So here, and the relevance to this here is there's always a food chain. It start, may start off with the little bugs in the river, the little tiny insects, that, are, but those are fed on by fish. Um, but they may be fed on by birds, or the fish themselves are fed on by birds. You know, there's a whole food chain that goes all the way up. And some, some of the, the numbers in this country are absolutely terrifying. Insect numbers, which are dropping by 50, 60, 70, 80%. Some of the songbirds that I'm old and gray now, but when I was a kid, you know, the skies were full of songbirds. And some of these birds, the populations are down by 90%. It's absolutely horrifying what's happening. Now, this is not totally, obviously, due to veterinary parasite treatments. It's due to a whole bunch of things and loss of habitat, climate change, chemical pollution in general, light pollution, all sorts of factors. But this particular subject we're talking about today 
is really important because it's one specific thing that we as the veterinary and dog owning public can actually do something about. Yes, because both of these are insecticides, so it's fipronil, isn't it, that's prevalent, and imiochloride, which is the insecticide, pesticide, whichever, that uh, is famous for killing bees. And um, the thing is, it's not used by farmers anymore, right? So, you know, there's no doubt about this somehow from pet owners it's getting into waterways so i mean could yes. this be i mean look the other thing you pointed out in the conference i was muted obviously and I, <laughs> I, uh, thank and goodness I, oh my goodness thank, can you imagine thank goodness yes because <laughs> words that i certainly couldn't might be able to say on my podcast but definitely not on the bbc came <laughs> out when when you know you proclaim that what we have to understand here is that the flea and tick treatment market is worth 100, correct me if I got it wrong, but I'm pretty sure I remember it, it was 178 million pounds a year. So hang on, that's a huge amount of money that's being pocketed by vets alone, right? And it's fueling, it pays their rent. And I just think, hang on a minute, I'm sort of fed up with this because Dog's a man's best friend. And what I seem to be seeing more and more of around me at the moment is people exploiting the hound pound to levels that I just don't. And this is an example of it. And now look what's happened. We we haven't got any midges anymore. I don't mind moths, but I know <laughs> they're important. But, you yeah. know, a lot have lived in my flat. Um, yes. but, but, you know, what I'm saying here is, hang on, we have to balance this. It surely isn't all about capitalism, or is it? Well, um, we need to unpick that a little a little bit. Um, it's true that according to figures from the industry, and this is from the pharmaceutical industry, or the uh, the, the parasite treat the, the the market for parasite treatments for pets is worth somewhere around one hundred and seventy million pounds a year, something like that. It's a it's a pretty significant. It's a that's a, you know it's a fifth of a billion pounds a year. It's, it's quite a lot of money. Um, now. What's happening, in my view, is that vets are being told that they need to do this. They need to use these medications. It's absolutely true. It's a revenue stream for clinics. And vets have their bills to pay just as anybody else does. They have their mortgages, their salaries, the the whole shebang. It is an income stream. It's true. But the narrative in the industry, and and this is largely promoted by the pharmaceutical industry, the narrative is these parasites are all really dangerous they must be treated and it's the only responsible thing um is to use a lot of these medications so the vets are implicated in this one but they're not the primary driver of it so that's that's the first thing second thing i want to go back um you mentioned there's two molecules that were interesting fipronil is one of them it's been around for quite a long time now as a, as a, a market leader for um, parasite treatments you can buy over the counter. There's another called imidacloprid. Now, imidacloprid, it's a bit of a mouthful to say. It's one of, it's it's called a neonicotinoid um, parasiticide. So it's it was used very widely um, 10 years ago as a crop dressing. So seeds that were being planted by farmers out there in on the land were soaked in the stuff. So that when the plant grew up, it had imidacloprid in the plant, and it helped to kill the bugs and the parasites, which might reduce the crop yield. Seems like a really good idea. 
Really, that, though, Andrew? But, well, you know, no, you know, no I'm, just, I'm saying that in the context of DDT and other things that we used to use way back in the day. Right. But then what was then noticed that was that this stuff was incredibly toxic for bees. And it ended up with there being an international ban on the use of imidacloprid in farms. And the farm usage has dropped to zero. But what has happened since then is that the market has simply shifted to the pets. And the quantity that is being used now on pets is about the same as was was being used at its peak in the farms. So, you know, it's, it's, and that's, I have to say, that's not the vets who've done that. That's the pharmaceutical companies who've done that. They've got this product, (laughs) this product, and they've just gone, hey, well, let's move it and use it on pets then. It's great. But it's not. It's two and a half tonnes of this stuff going out in the UK every year. It may not sound very much, but the amount that you put on an on a, um, uh, say, if you're going to treat your Labrador, a medium to large-sized dog, a single dose of this is enough to kill 25 million bees. Yeah, that's a staggering figure, you yeah. see. I know I, yeah. I, I, that I sort of hit yeah. me big time. But, so it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. but listen, Andrew, so surely, okay, so there is this massive problem now with the environment but how are we going to sort this out I mean obviously education is the big thing but surely we can take a leaf out of other countries maybe you know you said we're in the the worst 10 percent Britain is in the worst so how can we think gosh well let's look at a country that maybe isn't in that worst 10 percent and how they are are looking at things and you know I I love Scandinavia being you know half Scandinavian and um they just seem to do everything right in Scandinavia. There is quite a lot where they do that they do better than we do. In my in my view, yes. You know, uh, yeah, and and so explain explain how they do it then, and then maybe we could you know m- maybe their model could be adapted to to be used in in our vets, you know, and and then I have yeah, to ask yeah. you the question: Why isn't it already? Um, so right. explain what they do in Denmark. <laughs> in Den- well, in Denmark, for example, and I picked Denmark simply because, you know, I, I have connections there and, and I know some of the veterinary community and, and so on and so forth. Um, vets there are not allowed to give parasite treatments unless they either have a positive diagnosis or justifiable clinical suspicion that a specific animal has parasites. So that's quite different because in this country, the general you know habit at the moment is that you give preventative doses. You give these medications to your pets to try and prevent them getting parasites. Then Mark goes, nah, you can't do that. No, you treat them if they get parasites. And that's a very significant difference. Also, I have to say there, the vets are not allowed to sell these products themselves. So all they can do is write a prescription. Then you go to the pharmacy to get it, which reduces some of the financial incentive to do this. So can so I ask then, Andrew, but hmm. just, sorry, just, you know, how then, because I know living in Scandinavia is is expensive. So how yeah. do these vets survive then, like financially? Well, they do, they do what um, the sort of veterinary management consultants have been telling the industry for a long time, telling them what to do, which is, we shouldn't really focus on selling product. We should, we should, as vets, we should be focusing on selling expertise and knowledge and experience. Because otherwise, we just end up being shopkeepers. 
which is not really the way it ought to be going. You know, the, the whole point of going to see uh, a vet for their advice is that this is the, here is somebody who has a high level of technical and scientific training. They've been years at university and then afterwards may have had years and years in practice. You're buying experience. You're buying their an opinion um, and that we should focus on that more than um, than just on product sales. I mean, could it be also, I mean, over in the Scandinavian countries, I think they do have the dog license, for example, but it's kind of not like our dog license used to be, you know, it actually A, works, and B, it focuses a lot more on education and community to educate pet owners that, look, okay, when you, when you get a dog, you do have to be aware of diet, so let's talk about that. You you have to be, you know, aware about training, you know, we'll have to do it, so let's talk about that. Uh, aware of things like parasites and fleas and ticks. Awareness of it, awareness of the flea uh, life cycle, for example, and an awareness that, you know, your dog doesn't just go outside and get a flea. Yeah. And the fact that fleas, when you see a flea on your dog, um. I mean, once I did have a bad problem with fleas, actually, because I was going through a very sort of let's all be natural phase to a level that did come back and bite me quite literally <laughs> several times yeah. um, because I didn't realise that the, you know, the main flea in the whole world is a cat flea. Hippocrates wrote about the cat flea as being the most well-adapted, indestructible creature in the world. And the cat flea has been around since before 600 BC. Um, yeah. So it's well-adapted to live. And not only will fleas get immunity, as it were, like we're immune, getting immunity to antibiotics, they're getting immune to these um, insecticides. You know, they're clever. Um, you know, they'll they'll adapt. But also the fact is, if you've got a flea on your dog, you've got a flea in your sofa. So, you, you know, it's about keeping your environment. You know, I'm hoovering all the time. I've got all these, you know, essential oil infused natural water-based sprays that I spray down all the cracks in my sofa on a, on a week basis to be honest and it's about management yeah uh, it, it, it it is yes i think again just to go back a little bit what what i'm not saying and, and we as a group are not saying you should never treat for fleas you should never treat anything for anything um because there will be times when you need to do that if you're if your cat or dog comes back with a whole load of fleas and you don't want to get them in the house because they can be kind of tricky to get hold to, to get rid of as you've just said what the thrust of this really is is i think this is long overdue that we stop treating just on a sort of random preventative prophylactic basis if if your if your pet does have a parasite which is causing them a health problem treat it of course you're going to treat it that's fine. I don't have a, don't have a problem with that. What we got to get away from is the is the sheer the sheer quantity of all this. Now you raised the issue of of um, immunity or resistance to some of these products. Now certainly in the in the field in farm animals and in horse work, um, a lot of the little parasites that are being treated. So mostly we're here talking about intestinal worms in farm animals and horses. Resistance is a big problem. And so they have been forced into being much more strategic about the, how they use these products because they're worried about resistance, about the, about the bugs developing ways of resisting the, the, the treatments. Exactly the same with antibiotics. There's been huge changes in the way that we use antibiotics. Um, and largely that was about because we were worried about resistance 
and everybody now talks about MRSA, you know, the, and these these multiple antibiotic resistant superbugs um, that can be can be such a problem um, in our hospitals, particularly. So we've we've been forced to become much more careful about the way we use antibiotics. Now, curiously, that hasn't really been an issue so far with the parasite treatments used on pets. Now, maybe that's just a question of time. It's it's hard to tell. But to my mind, there isn't really very much of a difference. But, uh, you know, a parasite treatment, well, it's killing a big visible parasite in your pet. Antibiotics, what do they do? They kill little tiny microscopic bugs that you, that, that you can't see. It's the same. We should apply the same sort of principles to, to both. I mean, I have my, my gut, my intestines are full of bacteria. Full of yes. I don't take antibiotics all the time to try and kill them off. Because I also, A, I know I don't need it. And B, I actually know that those bugs in my intestine are actually essential for my healthy, you know, for, for my for my healthy life. The parasites there doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't necessarily mean we need to be treating them all. No, that's right. Well, it's more about repelling them, isn't it, really? Well, Once, it is, you yeah. Know. And this, it's the whole new highlight here, though, is one of the areas where actually there is a lack of data, a lack of real knowledge about all the aspects of parasites. Up until now, the narrative has been, oh, parasites are bad, must treat them, must treat them, must stop them even getting in there in the first place. And actually, we're changing the story a little bit now, but it's time to change the story a little bit more. And we need to gather more reliable data. If we look at the number of the number of dogs who actually have fleas at any given moment. There was a huge survey done through um, uh, an organization called Vet Compass who have access to hundreds, millions of case records across the UK. And they did a survey of 900,000 dogs at 800 different veterinary clinics. And of all those 900,000 dogs, just 2% of them had fleas. All right? So those 2% should get treated. But that doesn't mean we have to treat 900,000 dogs in order to just get the 2% of them that actually had fleas. Oh, gosh, I know. No, I mean, <laughs> but were those 2%, were those dogs not having fleas because they'd had so much spot-on <laughs> treatments put on them that their body is full of insecticide? Well, that's a very good question. And the truthful answer to that is well, we're not quite sure because we don't have the data. What we do know is that not every dog goes to the vet on a regular basis and not every dog is getting treated on a regular basis. And if we look at if we look at the statistics, you look at the numbers and see, well, what's the total amount of these products that's being sold? And let's what's the the, the average dose for each one? You can get a rough idea. How many of these animals are actually being how often are all these dogs actually being treated? And the answer is not very often. So the treatments that we're using are causing a problem in the environment, but it's a relatively small number of animals that are actually being treated with these products. You see what I mean? There's yeah, a, yeah. There's a difference there. So the the I don't. It doesn't look as if enough animals are being treated to reduce the overall number of fleas out there because there's a relatively small number of animals that are being treated. It's just that when those treatments are being used, it's causing a big problem. 
Well, it, it would if one spot on for a Labrador kills 25 million bees. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. in one Labrador's lifetime, if they have a spot on treatment every month, I mean, I can't calculate that because my maths isn't good enough. But, yeah. you know, 15 times 12 uh, yeah, whatever, 25, it's a lot. It's a lot. Really? So, um, yeah, and gosh, I mean, and, you know, if you think as well, though, arguably it's cats. So if, if if education maybe could feature more as part of veterinary medicine, that may not always lead to a sale, as you say, but and go more the Scandinavian route. For me, I just feel I'd like my vet more and want to hear what they had to say, you know, because... I mean, I've left the vet practice with this new vet that's come up the road a good few times without having to bought anything. But yeah. he's quite different. Um, he's Australian. And anyway, he is quite different, actually. Yeah. And it's great. So, you know, he was like, no, no, we're not going to give Gremlin a flea treatment today. He has been bitten by a flea. I can see that. But no one else has in the house. It's not yeah. like red emergency. Let's get the spot on out. Because what you were saying about parasites, it's our fear of bugs. But at the end of the day, if we don't have some good bacteria, if we kill everything, annihilate everything, there won't be any good bacteria to fight the bad bacteria in a natural homeostatic kind of way. And yeah. we're all going to become super sterile and we're going to become like the rivers. Um, which is a bit worrying. So if you think, you know, okay, this spot on can kill 25 million bees. I don't care what anyone says. It can't be awfully good for your dog. Um, mm. I think it's called a no brainer. Yeah. <laughs> so surely we should be looking just at, at environmentally using natural products that will repel the fleas, boost your animal's immune system, arguably by not feeding overly processed food, which again, doesn't fuel the microbiome because what you're saying about the gut 90% of our immune system we know now lives in the gut. So, you know, it, it's about basically being natural with an animal that is natural and that can survive like a human body quite naturally if you get the balance right. Yeah, I think, again, this is one of the things that this, this work is, is throwing out, that, that we need more information. Um, we, we, the, the, the focus very much has been on uh, you know modern chemical solutions to an apparent problem um and we don't there are there are more traditional remedies out there you know people have been coexisting with fleas for a very long time um but we need a little bit more research being being done on that you I mean, shouldn't underestimate that fleas can be a major problem you know they're heavily implicated in the black death if you go back a, go back a little while i mean we should we can't let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater as it were and not, not suddenly stop doing everything but it just i think in this field as with so many aspects of of our lives at the moment we just need to be a lot more careful about the way that we live in the environment around us and we can't keep on bulldozering our way through thinking there's always going to be a scientific solution we're going to fix it it doesn't matter and you know we're making a mess of this and it's i think it's often not obvious how much of a mess we are making of this dear little planet we live on um we need to look after it a lot more a lot more than we are yeah, and, and, you know, I think an awareness as well, 
you know, for the new dog owners to not just rush and buy one of the 138 flea treatment products that yeah. are available in the yeah. UK. I mean, yes. you know, I, I, do I we what, need that many? <laughs> well, well, indeed. I think what our sort of call to, call to action on this is, is twofold, really. I think for, for dog owners out, out there, have these conversations. Don't be afraid to have the conversation with your vet. Um, do I need to use these products on my pet? What's the evidence? You know, does my pet have parasites? Is it affecting their health? Is it a problem for, for my pet? Is it a problem for me? Do I actually have to give these treatments? Because if I do, I will. And if I don't, well, maybe I'll think again. That's the first question. Secondly, are there any environmental downsides to using these products? Now, and I would like to see more animal owners having those conversations with their vets, because then the vets will either be able to give them the answer they need, or they're going to have to go away and look it up, or they're going to have to go to the pharmaceutical company and say, uh, what's going on here? Everybody's asking me now about the environmental profile of product X or product Y, and it looks pretty bad. What are you going to do about it? You know, I think it's it's you know a groundswell of of public questioning and and is is the way that this might actually get to be changed. Yeah, and and the mantra test before you treat. I mean, we've been mainly sort of focusing on on you know fleas and jumping bugs, but yeah. with with worms, for example, I'm sure wormers yeah. aren't doing a great deal of greatness for the planet either. But you see, I don't do wormers. I t you know I do the three days of poop thing and send it to a laboratory. There's a couple of big ones in you know in the UK. Yeah. One's wormcount.com, and there's another one. And yeah. literally, you do it every three months, every six months. And you find out if your dog has got worms. And yeah, so what, are the, what, are, what results do you get back normally? What results do I get back? Yes. Well, very interestingly, actually, Andrew, negligible. Although, well, I went through two rounds of worms and both Prudence and Mr. Binks had got fox lungworm. Okay. So the first time Mr. B Mr. Binks was the first one, he was medium. So you get it. So with fox lungworm, Prue was low. But Binks, little Binks, he was medium. I'm having a heart attack. So, you know, my vet's Barbara Jones, really up in Shropshire at the Oakwood practice. So I'm ringing yeah. Barbara going, oh, my God, Binks is going to die. You you know what I'm like, you. <laughs> and then Barbara said, I very much doubt it, Anna. And so she quickly sent me down Panicure. Okay, so not the other one, which we can't name because, you know, um, that you put spot on. Um, yeah. Actually, you treat lungworm, actually, not with that, funnily enough. So I learned a huge amount. Five days on um, a brand called Panicure, which arguably is less intense, certainly for the dog, because it goes into the tummy. So most of it comes out the other end anyway. Yeah. So it's great. It doesn't linger and mysterious get into the bloodstream then you wait a week right and then yeah. you do the three days of poop using the first morning's poop all the rest of it so yeah. easy to find on on the internet and basically came back clear so that's okay. now what I do but you see the problem is where I live because I'm quite near to the Hackney Marsh very near the Hackney Marshes we, we've got so many foxes it's a massive problem actually my neighbor's staffy was attacked by a fox the other night puncture oh, wow. wounds blood the whole works um no. yeah no her partner had to get the fox off the dog I mean and they it's a rogue fox apparently so oh, another little minor drama of course that you have to cope with but yeah, sure. um there are a lot of foxes and they do carry disease so you know oh, 
do. Yes, they 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 do, and there's no doubt that lungworm is an issue in the dog and fox population of the UK. You can't you can't deny that. But I have to say, I would take issue with. I mean, during last year, there was some advertising to the general public for one of the medicines, prescription medicines used to treat lungworm in dogs. And first of all, the pharmaceutical companies are not meant to advertise prescription-only medicines directly to the general public. So it was a, it was done a little bit on the sly. But one of the things on there, it said 2,997 cases already reported. Okay. What was this for? So, Sorry, lungworm. This is lungworm. 2,900, that's nearly 3,000 cases already reported. And this is on a huge billboard at the side of the main road. Now, 3,000 cases, that sounds like a lot of cases. When I contacted the company, they admitted that that was over a 17-year period. Okay. Oh, gosh. That's so 3,000 divided by 17 years, mm, it's about 150 cases a year. Okay, that's fine. That's still quite a lot if it's your dog, obviously. But there are, what, 12 million dogs in this country? Yeah, and also the thing is with lungworm, so I have done podcasts on this, is, you know, it does, doesn't just get your dog and then your dog goes and dies. I mean, yeah. it takes quite a while. You know, you see a lot of, but none of these symptoms were in either Prue or Mr. Binks. That's why, you know, I was actually totally shocked, which does yeah. go to show, you know, you need to monitor. But this has happened for me once in Mr. Binks is 11. Prudence yeah. is nearly eight. So it's not, yeah. you know, all the time. But equally from going for a medium reading with wormcount.com to keeling over, it's a long way to go. You sure. know, your dog's got to start coughing, have, you know, really showing symptoms of lethargy, of really not being well in order for, for you know, to become curtains. And, um, sure. you know, I mean, don't yeah, get yeah. me wrong, I freaked out. Of course you did, and quite normally so. But I think we just need to get a little bit of sense of proportion on this as well. And you have to ask the question, if the... The numbers quoted by the pharmaceutical company are correct. Then we have to ask the question, should we be treating 12 million dogs every month? So that's 150 million doses a year in order to prevent the 150 cases that were reported. You see, because I don't know what the answer to that is. I really don't. But you're sort of getting into more of a sort of philosophical answer. And the same applies with some of the some of the paras pet parasite diseases which can potentially affect people. And there are some. But we have to get into the thinking, well, how many how many doses are we going to tolerate? How many is the right number to give? Do we treat everything all the time? Or some do we risk assess? Do we choose the most likely dogs and treat those? I, I think there's, there's lots of questions here. They're almost becoming more philosophical questions, actually, as to how many how many treatments do we need to use in order to save each extra dog, cat? I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I think it's important we start looking at it in those terms rather yeah. than just blanket treatment for everything all the time. 
Yeah, and being aware to test before your treat. I mean, you, you yeah. know, I've done a big deal to save the planet because yeah. I don't give my dogs the regular spot on wormer, yeah. right? Because yeah. I know I don't have to because I understand yeah. about test before you treat. But this is wormcount.com, yeah, for example, has been around for, for decades, years. But yeah. vets don't. Should, that's the annoying should, bit. Yeah. That's the annoying bit for me, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I'm yeah, and again, it's a change. It's a change of process and a change of mentality. And, and, and it would seem logical given that we now know that we have a problem with all this all these chemicals we know we have a problem so it would seem logical therefore to change the way that we deal with it so some sort of shift towards testing before treatment would seem to be a logical sensible thing to do yeah and it's also you know you've got to think of the actual pet owner as well here right about yeah. the cost of living crisis for example um yeah. lots of dogs are facing you know ending up at the RSPCA for example you know because they can't yeah. the people can't afford them and you've got all these subscription services that vets yeah. are like to sell people into um yeah. oh, which again yeah. is yeah. a financial one a driver a financial driver and and the subscription service seems to be the thing at the moment so again yes it's i think it just needs yeah, looking at, doesn't it really, Andrew? But look, we're not going to solve it today. But I think <laughs> really? can, I thought we just had. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we have. You know, test, but honestly, where wormers are concerned, I honestly, honestly, but I mean, the, well, the other problem is, which is not one for today, we have discussed it before, but this not picking up your dog's poop, if people can't do that, well, then you can't test before you treat for worms and the way I I mean let's not go there but it's really reaching proportions that I've never seen in my life and I'm 57 and it's not funny pick up your poo there's all sorts of reasons for wanting to do it and one 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 reason which is worth bearing into taking into account all those dogs out there taking a poop in the woods yeah, you know, a lot of them. If you're able to to walk in a nice country area and you've got lovely virgin woodland and you can walk in there, that soil is the the ecosystem in the woodland is designed to function on a fairly poor quality soil in woods. You suddenly got millions of dogs taking a poo on there. It's like adding fertilizer all the time. All those nitrates, phosphates, and everything else in the poo, they start to feed the soil, and suddenly you get different plants thriving that couldn't thrive before because you're now essentially fertilizing it with dog poo. Sounds like a great idea, except it isn't because it disturbs the ecosystem. And that delicate balance between plants, microorganisms and bigger bugs and so and, and animals, it starts to change. Everything mm-hmm. we do has consequences. It doesn't mean we stop doing everything, but um, it does have consequences. Well, it's about homeostasis, isn't it? Which is Absolutely. a big thing when you're, yeah, mm-hmm. when you're studying naturopathic healthcare, which now apparently everyone is doing. Andrew, when I did my study, I was considered, you know, a bit of an alien. You know, why oh, are you yeah. doing this? <laughs> which obviously I am. No, I'm joking. But um, <laughs> now it's the I've always thought you was an alien. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's the buzzword, Andrew. You know, yeah. last and um, rather than allopathic. So we shall see what goes on. But listen, thanks for joining us today, and I, please come back and everything and we'd like updates on this and updates to see for example if a major publication you know on the veterinary industry publishes I know they were at the press conference whether they you know follow suit and look at things like you know worm counts for dogs wormcount.com there's several of these laboratories out there and put a different spin on picking up your dog's poop picking up your dog's poop can save your monthly wormer cost so you're going to be quids in 
Yeah, exactly. And these things are being reviewed. In fact, just as as uh, just before we started this session today, I was the, the veterinary medicines directorate is the is the branch of DEFRA that looks at veterinary medicines, and they are there's a review going on for all these kind of medicines at the moment. A review for how they're used, how they're legislated for, how they're controlled and monitored, and so on and so forth. So um, there is a there's a process there, which but as you know. The wheels grind terribly slowly sometimes. Yes, and pharmaceuticals have a big clout, Andrew. On that note, yeah. <laughs> let's let's regroup very soon, please, because I let's hope, let's hope. I just hope that change can happen. I I I hope it I hope it will. And we have to just keep pressure on. As I say, the message to dog owners out there is just keep asking the questions. You know, ask the questions and see if we can figure out if there's a better way of doing these things. Yay. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Listen, lovely to talk to you and hope to see you again soon. Hey, Mr Binks, that's our show. What did you think? I know, it's a shocking fact that Britain is in the worst 10% of countries globally. Yes, and you're right, it is time for Woof of the Week. Just remember, everybody, it's not mandatory to put a flea treatment on your dog every month. Why don't you test before you treat instead? <laughs> well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, rate and review the show wherever you tune into your podcast. Thanks again, of course, to Andrew Prentice for joining us today. And yes, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen, my producer, for all the production and music as ever. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We are back in your feed next Sunday. See you next week. Bye for now.